Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Too much pressure. Welcome to Strange Familiars. How are you doing tonight, Allison? I'm doing well. That's good. You're back. Mm-hmm. I never really left. Yeah, you were there for the curiosities both times, but you were replaced by Chad. <laughs> Temporarily. No one could ever really replace you, Allison. No, I hope not. Know that. Know that in your heart of hearts. <laughs> tonight we're going to talk murder. We're going to talk ghosts. Maybe was there a wild man in there? And local history. And local history. So for all of our local friends, this one you can drive to. Yeah. I mean, it's a walk from Riverbend Comics. It is. (laughs) It is. The bend in the river is literally where we're talking about. (laughs) Speaking of Riverbend, when we come back after the main show, I'm going to be talking to John. He's got a very special comic he wants to announce that he's taking pre-orders for that I think will be of great interest to Strange Familiars listeners. But first... Let's thank our patrons. Okay. Thank you, patrons. We could not make Strange Familiars without you. Without your help, there would be no show. If you like the content we make, if you like what we do here on Strange Familiars, and you'd like to help us make more content and get extra content with it, you can become a patron at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. All of our patrons get ad-free episodes of the weekly shows and then two full extra episodes of Strange Familiars every month. That's exclusive to our patrons. I just dropped a patron episode over the weekend. Dark Solstice at Pandemonium. Continuing our Pandemonium adventures. It's got some pretty interesting on-site footage. I never know. Is is audio recording footage? I think that's just video. I think that's video. Yeah. I think it's just audio. It's on-site it's got, audio. Well, it's got some pretty pretty interesting audio, including a very audible grunt that we heard at one point. Patrons got to hear that. If you want to get those exclusive episodes while helping us make Strange Familiars, 
go ahead on over to Patreon, patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. All right, let's get into this murder most foul. As opposed to all those really good ones. (laughs) An old-style rusty revolver exhibited in the window of R.S. McGee's hardware store at Wrightsville recalls the murder of Miss Emma Myers by John Coyle in the barn that now stands at the Accomack Pleasure Resort on the York County side of the river opposite Marietta. The crime was committed with this revolver 30 years ago, Coyle was hanged for the crime, and his body reposes in an unmarked grave surrounded by a low fence, almost within the shadow of the barn where the murder was committed. While the girl was in the barn milking one of the cows, Coyle, who had been forcing his attentions on her, entered the stable, and because she refused to listen to his pleadings to become his wife, he shot her three times. He was arrested and taken to York. Fearing that he would not get a fair trial because of the bitter feelings against him, a change of venue was granted, and the case was tried in an Adams County court. Coyle was found guilty and paid the penalty of his crime on the gallows in the jail at Gettysburg. Adams County News, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, 21st of May, 1910. Well, that's the show. (laughs) Good night, everybody. There, you got the story. No, we've been working on this for a while. On and off. I mean, it's something we plan to do for a while. It's not like we've been actively working on it. Yeah, we had planned to do it like a year or two ago, and then other things got in the way. Starting off with this article, I always found that very interesting, that this revolver was in this hardware store. In the window of it. In Wrightsville. Yeah. Which, for those listeners who go to Albatwitch Day, Wrightsville is directly across the bridge from Columbia, from Albatwitch Day. If you would go across the bridge, that's right by the festivities there at Albatwitch Day, that would take you to Wrightsville. And this hardware store sits at the corner of the street that runs along the river and the street that parallels the bridge. So it's right at that corner. It's obviously not still a hardware store. In fact, I read that that hardware store went bankrupt within six months of this article. (laughs) Which kind of bums me out, because I always thought it would be neat to own that revolver, right? Or at least figure out where it is now. Yeah, who knows? Probably somewhere in that person's family. And I guess the other question is, how does one get the revolver from a crime scene? Yeah, but you think you figured it out, didn't you? Yeah, his father was the justice of the peace who actually arrested Coyle, so... The father of the guy who owned the hardware store? Yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. That's how he got the revolver. Yeah. (laughs) I wonder how many other little prizes his family picked up over the years. So this event takes place at the Accomac, and some listeners may have heard me talk about it before because the Accomac has a wild man story associated with it, and we'll get to that later because it's not really part of the murder story. The Accomac is in... Hellam Township, right outside the town of Wrightsville. It's right along the river. It's been a long-standing inn. I guess they called it a resort kind of thing. Yeah, pleasure resort, and then it became like a high-end restaurant for a while, and it's had many different turnovers, and I believe it just was sold again within the past six months or so. Yeah. Before that, it was a ferry crossing. Exactly. So. And that's where this family comes into play. The Accomac, by the way, is a beautiful building. It's an absolutely beautiful building. I'll try to put a picture of it up. And this, this is the newer one, right? Because the one that from the time burnt down in 1935. Oh, I did not know that. And so this is a newer building. Oh, it looks like very old construction. Though. I think 
I'm pretty sure this is um because well I have some photo postcards that are before that. that are before the 30s. I wonder if it's maybe the resort end of it or something like extra buildings. Maybe because the photo postcards I have would have been from the very early 1900s. Yeah, and I remember I had a photo that I sold that was a some people visiting the Acumac, yeah. and it was from like the teens. It looks family. the same. I, it's, yeah, I'm pretty sure the building itself where they had the restaurant that's old construction. I'm it does sure. look really old. Yeah, but it's a beautiful building. It's right along the river. There were only a few places you could cross yeah. early on to cross the Susquehanna. And the Susquehanna is very large. Like, I lived for a while near the Rio Grande, and it's got nothing on this area of the Susquehanna as far as size. Susquehanna is a major river. Yeah, it's like, it's, ba- it's awesome. I'm always awed by it. Back then, it would have been way more fast-moving and way more dangerous because now we have dams in it that kind of create what they call lakes. Mm-hmm. It's really just slow-moving parts of the river. But it would have been... Way more dangerous and, and fast-moving back then. And there are plenty of people that work in a capacity as ferrymen, who basically you were just on a big wooden barge, and somebody with a stick's basically guiding you along, knowing where where the holes are, mm-hmm. where the fast-moving parts are, where the areas to be wary of yeah. are. And coincidentally, and we're going to talk about this, I think, more this year, but this also parallels um, the Underground Railroad. Right. So yeah. a lot of people thought of the Susquehanna as the, the true crossing over from the South to the North to, to freedom, because York kind of was like a... I mentioned this on Discord the other day. Oh, okay. There were so many slave catchers in York that the way I explained it on Discord was like getting across the Susquehanna River into Lancaster County was almost as big a deal as getting over the Mason-Dixon line. If not more so, I think, yeah, yeah. because it meant a, a, a bigger level of security. We're going to get in all... I can't wait to do the Underground Railroad shows. We're going to do those coming up. We'll get in way more into that. But this river crossing point becomes part of that story as well. And so it, even it was in the 1860s that the Coyle family bought this particular ferry because previously it was known as Anderson's and then Glatz's Ferry. It tends to take on the name of the people who own it or the people mm-hmm. who are the ferrymen of the time. So from the 1860s on it, this area is called Coyle's Ferry. And both John Coyle, the father, and John Jr., the fellow who's involved in this crime, were both ferrymen. Mm-hmm. John Sr. and... His mother, I suppose, they owned the Yakimak. They were the owners. John Jr., or or Johnny Coyle, as they called him, Johnny the Younger, sometimes Crazy Johnny. Yeah. (laughs) He was their only child. They were Irish immigrants. Johnny was born March 15th, 1855, and had kind of a troubled life. Yeah, it was like one of those things where a bunch of sort of unseemingly related events start to become sort of snowball into a personality Mm -hmm. and a a mental health issue that gets out of control. The Coyles employed a few servants and had a few boarders there at the Yakimak. And one of these was named Emma Myers. Now, who was Emma Myers? Well, we know most of the information from the newspaper article at the time talking about the telegram sent to her sister in Harrisburg. That gives us the address and the name of her sister. And from that, we can extrapolate some other factors. Like her father had died in 1879. She's working here starting around 1880, early part of 1881. So she must have had to go to work to help support the family. In the articles, it says that her mother's deceased, but I found her in the census living with her sister in Harrisburg. So I don't know if her mother was deceased or unable to work. Her sister's working mm. at a general store in Harrisburg. And for a long time, they were raised by their grandfather in Chambersburg. And she did work around the Akamak. She milked the cows. I'm sure she did other 
work around the barn. And, and yeah, and if they the had boarders and people visiting from like a resort standpoint, even in a small capacity, she probably helped with that aspect of it. And she stayed at the Akamak. Yeah, in fact, she shared a room with the mother. They don't mention whether the father shared that same room or whether... Yeah, I don't know, yeah. I think sometimes it's just small quarters. It's not a matter of anything. Yeah, I don't. It's not anything salacious, but it's just. But Johnny Junior, John Junior, the younger, he began to take an interest in Emma. There was an Emma before her. In fact, in the 1880 census, there's an Emma Ensweiler that lives with them. Did they only hire Emmas? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) One of the requirements for this job is you must be named Emma. (laughs) It was very popular. We don't want to learn a new name. (laughs) It's curious because there's a John M. Swyler who testifies at the trial, who I presume is some relationship to, to the first Emma. To the first Emma. Oh, interesting. But there are quite a few women that come and go. There's a seems to be a pretty big turnover at the at their establishment, due in part probably largely to Johnny's behavior. Hmm. I think we're beginning to get a little picture here. Yeah. It also was said that Johnny did not have the ability to hold on to other jobs for a while. He was hauling wood back and forth, but then he would go off for a while in different places. And basically, he was only able to hold down this job because his dad was overseeing the fact that he was doing it. Mm, the job is the ferryman. Mm-hmm. Well, on May 30th, 1881, Emma gets up early to do the milking. It's Decoration Day, which is the day that is more commonly known today as Memorial Day. She had been working on getting flowers ready, and he destroyed them so she'd have a reason to stay. Really? Yeah. It was very. Oh, that's weird. I didn't know that part. Yeah, for the uh, days leading up to the murder, he had been in his room since that Saturday. He hadn't taken any meals, and he hadn't talked to anybody. Just shut in his room. Just shut in his room, which was apparently... Common practice. Well, while she's out doing this milking on May 30th, 1881, John's mother hears three loud bangs and goes to check. And she calls Emma, but sees her son coming back from the barn. So this is an excerpt from an article published. After his death, actually. Okay. In the days right after his execution. This is from the Public Weekly Opinion Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, Saturday, April 26, 1884. Early on the morning of May 30, 1881, Miss Myers, as was her custom, took a couple of pails and walked to the barn, situated a short distance from the house for the purpose of milking. She had accomplished the task and was about returning to the house with the pails full of milk when John appeared on the scene. What then took place is not known, except that which was afterward told by the murderer to his mother. "'Emily, are you going to marry me?' he said." She answered, no, I'm not going to marry you or anyone else. Whereupon he said, well, I'm going to kill you. And she retorted, John Coyle, you are too much of a coward to kill even a woman. But the terrible result proved that he was just coward enough to do it. It was evident that the direction taken by the shot, which entered the center of the breast and came out on the right side of the back, between the eighth and ninth ribs, that he fired just as she went to stoop to pick up the milk pails and close the conversation by returning to the house. Coward-like, he then fired another shot, which also took effect. Either of them would have caused instant death, and the dead body of the girl was found near the milking pails. The miserable wretch who had committed this terrible crime followed it up by firing a shot at his own breast, but it struck the breastbone and evidently glanced off as the doctors could not find it. As this shot did not take effect, he put the pistol near his left ear and fired again, but the bale again struck a bone and glanced off, doing no other harm than to produce a flesh wound. Thinking he had discharged all the chambers in the pistol, 
He threw it down near the dead body and walked into the house and informed his mother, who had heard the shots, dressed herself and ran downstairs, that he had shot himself and had also killed Emily. Sometimes she's referred to as Emily, sometimes Emma. And that she was out in the stable dead. His father, coming downstairs immediately afterward, repeated the same story to him, and he ran out to the barn to ascertain the truth and found the girl lying in the stable, as his son had said. He raised her arm and found life extinct, and at once closed the door and sent to Wrightsville, three miles below, for doctors Redmond and Thompson. They started immediately for the scene of the tragedy, as did Justice Frank McGee and Constable Schoenberger of Wrightsville, after summoning a coroner's jury to hold an inquest. Of course, medical aid could do nothing for the girl, but when the officers arrived, her body was taken into the house. The physicians made the requisite examination, and an inquest was held, and the jury rendered a verdict that Emily Myers came to her death from a pistol shot fired by John Coyle. When the officers arrived, they found young Coyle upstairs lying on the bed, and he made no attempt to disguise the fact that he had killed the girl, and himself gave the evidence that it was a deliberate and premeditated murder. It also transpired during the injury into the circumstances surrounding that the tragedy that young Coyle had shot at the girl on Saturday, but it was while they were having some words, and was such a random shot, that his father took no further account of it than to take the pistol away from him and hide it. <laughs> the boy found it again, however, and after he had, as he supposed, fired all the loads out of it that morning, left it lying by the girl's body. But only six of the chambers had been discharged, one load remaining in it. His intention, as expressed by himself, was to kill the girl and then himself, and to die by her side. When he returned to the house, after making the two attempts upon his life, he asked his father to let him have a revolver so that he might finish the job. He said he'd been intending to kill Emily for some time past. Coyle's story of his attempted suicide, however, had been doubted by witnesses at both trials and by others. It is alleged that he was too much of a coward to endeavor to take his own life. Doesn't sound like the most pleasant fellow. No, you know, it's like... Johnny was a good boy. <laughs> Johnny wouldn't do any harm to anybody, except for, for all these blatant signs of the fact that he really did intend to do all this harm to all these people. Yeah, yeah. Now, we have another article that was written the day after the murder, or published the day after yeah, the murder. Yeah, so this so. is very soon. The Tragedy at Coyle's Ferry, Lodgement of the Murderer in the York Jail. Mrs. Coyle, mother of the murderer, testified that she called the murdered girl at 5 o'clock when she got up as usual and went about her work, that of milking. At six o'clock, she got up herself, and shortly afterward, her son John came in and said, Mother, I've shot Emma, and I shot myself. She just quivered and fell down dead. She also testified that her son had asked the girl to marry him, telling her that if she refused, he would shoot her. She straightened herself up and, pointing to her breast, said, Well, shoot right here, and when he drew the revolver and fired the fatal shot. Officer Schoenberger of Wrightsville had accompanied Justice McGee and at once arrested the murderer, turning him over to the custody of Officer Dietz of Helm Township, who was deputized to bring him to York. And about 12 o'clock, in the company with Justice Halk of Hellam, he arrived with the prisoner and placed him in jail in charge of the sheriff. Dr. S.J. Rouse was at once summoned to look after the prisoner's wounds, and a careful examination was made, but after probing could find no ball in either. The wounds, though painful, will not resolve seriously. The prisoner is 26 years old, about 5 feet 10 inches in height, dark hair and mustache, and very much sunburnt. He is widely known in the county, especially along the river, for his connection with the ferry. He answered the first few questions put to him by the dispatch reporter readily, but afterwards declined to talk, and when told that his wounds were not dangerous, he replied that it would have been better had he killed himself. After his wounds had been examined, he was locked into cell number 18, though several times said that there was no need to lock him up, that he would do what was wanted if they treated him right. He did not appear to understand the serious nature of his crime, with its probable result, but thought he should be sent to the hospital, and once he remarked that he was weak in the head and that his doctor knew it. 
Dr. Rouse, however, stated that he saw no sign of insanity in the prisoner. Before taking him from his home, his wounds were examined by doctors Redmond and Thompson, but no balls were found in them. The murdered girl is said to have been very beautiful. She was about 19 years of age and had been living with the Coils for about a year. Her parents are both dead. The revolver with which she was killed is in the possession of Justice McGee. Six of the chambers are empty, but how often he shot the prisoner is unable to state. A strange part of the affair is that the ball should have such immediate and fatal effect on the girl, and yet when held to his own breast and head with suicidal intent, the balls did not penetrate the bone, but glanced off into the flesh. The shirt worn by the prisoner shows the bullet hole and is stained with blood, but shows no sign of scorching by powder. From the Lancaster Daily Intelligencer, 31st of May, 1881. He's taken to jail at York, and the first trial begins October 19th, 1881. This is a pretty speedy trial. Yeah, at which he pleads insanity, as you do. We have an article about oil in the coil. The Harrisburg Daily Independent, 27th of October, 1881. A York jury says guilty. The insanity dodge fails to work, and the murderer of Emily Myers will pay the usual penalty as the central figure in a hanging match. The trial of John Coyle Jr. for the murder of Emily Myers was concluded yesterday. The jury, after deliberating about two hours, returned a verdict of murder in the first degree. The charge of Mr. George McElroy, closed for the Commonwealth, occupied about one hour and a half and made a deep impression on the jury. He referred to the atrocity upon a defenseless orphan girl by one who, from the fact that she was employed at his father's house, should have been the last to assail her. After relating the details of the killing, he said the first inquiry to be made, the slaying and the slayer not being disputed, was the motive which led to the commission of the deed. The evidence tended to show that the prisoner was weak-minded, but also that John Coyle was drunk so frequently that the probability is that this act was done when he was in that condition. Is a man to be considered insane because he asks a beautiful lady to marry him, because he wrote a love letter to young ladies near Wrightsville, he referred to the prisoner's alleged attempts at suicide and asked why, if he wanted to kill himself, he did not fire the remaining cartridge in his pistol. And after fully expatiating upon all the points brought out during the trial, he closed saying that if the prisoner is guilty of the crime with which he is charged, it is the duty of the jury to render verdict accordingly and leave the consequences of such a verdict with the court. Each juror had entered into an obligation to do his duty in this case fully, firmly, and without fear of favor. If he so discharges them, when he approaches the line that separates him from the mysterious country from whose bounds no traveler ever returns, he can do so with the conviction that he discharged his whole duty through life. The charge of Judge Wicks followed and took about one hour for its delivery. He opened his charge by stating that he did not propose to devote much time to dwelling upon the serious character of the offense committed, but would give as clearly and briefly as possible what he conceived to be the necessary questions of law arising in the case. He said that the evidence presented in the case had already been thoroughly reviewed by counsel and proceeded to give the legal definition of the crime charged in the indictment, being murder as when a person of sound memory and discretion unlawfully kills any reasonable creature or being and under the peace of the commonwealth with malice aforethought express or implied. To constitute murder in the first degree, the crime must be committed with malice afterthought, either express or implied, and he then gave the characteristics of murder in the second degree in manslaughter and finally said in his opinion, they had to deal in this case only with murder in the first degree. He referred to the Commonwealth's proof of the killing, the threats made by the prisoner before, and his declarations after the occurrence, and stated that from these facts, the Commonwealth claimed that it had made out a prima facie case against the prisoner. You have heard both sides, and it is for you to do your duty and render a true verdict. 
The jury retired 11.30 and returned the verdict at 1.30 in the afternoon. The prisoner himself did not appear to be affected, although his lips quivered as he was waiting to hear the verdict. His aged mother sobbed aloud while his father evidently labored to restrain his feelings. Court then adjourned until today when a motion was filed for an arrest of judgment and a new trial. So he ends up being sentenced to death. But by December, he requests a retrial, or I suppose his lawyers do. This goes to the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. And they rule for a new trial, which was granted in October of 1882. They also asked for a change of venue because they said he cannot get a fair trial in York, which may have been the case. Mm -hmm. This was all over the newspapers. He would have been known for sure as the killer. Yeah, and probably a lot of people knew him as the ferryman who had a Mm -hmm. personal connection to him. Yeah. So it's moved to Adams County, Gettysburg. And a new trial begins in April of 1883. During this trial, his parents testify about his mental state they're trying to um, trying to go for that insanity. Yeah, they're trying to bolster that opinion. And honestly, if their testimony has any merit to it, it does lend quite a bit of credence to the to that thought. You found something from the Case Law Access Project that you were going to read. This is a website about case law, obviously. Old case yeah. Law. Yeah. There was much evidence given on behalf of the prisoner with the view of showing that he was insane at and before the killing. Among other things, it was testified that as far back as 1871, when a boy of 16, he was injured in the hand by the accidental discharge of a gun close to his head, and his face was blackened with powder and blood. This appears to be true because it actually, we found the article in the newspaper from 1871. He actually um, blew off one of his fingers. Yeah, yeah. And then the following year, he was prostrated by a very severe attack of typhoid fever, and ever since then suffered at intervals from pain in the back of his head that he was in the habit of secluding himself at times, wandering alone in the woods and refusing to take food, that he was addicted to secret vice and occasionally to strong drink, was annoyingly garrulous on the subject of matrimony, abruptly asking women to marry him, that he always played marbles with boys in the streets and would often beg a dime to get a drink, never was able to attend any business except rowing a ferry, and was often called by the nickname Crazy Johnny Coyle, and that on the Saturday before the killing, he was in a depressed mental condition and locked himself in his room, would not come out to get meals, and was not seen again until Monday morning, a few minutes after he had shot and killed the girl. Yeah. Um, there's also, there are some warning signs here. Yeah, there's, his parents are trying to get him a lot of help. Mm-hmm. When he's sent to the doctor, he reveals that he, his secret vices have taken over, and the fact that things are not working in that department has made him very frustrated. And he's also... He's talking to other men that is testifying that it wasn't so much marriage that he wanted from these women. And this, these weren't consensual relationships. This wasn't a sweetheart of his. And so when they talk about that, it's a very romanticized view. He was preying on people in the area. And there are lots of women to, are testifying to his Ooh. inappropriate behavior, which, you know, nowadays we might have the language for, but. Yeah, back then. Back then, perhaps not including relatives, cousins. Uh, wow. Yeah. So. Not a nice guy. Yeah, I certainly had some issues. We have an article about his stay in the jail in Gettysburg. It's interesting because, you know, I didn't really think of people as being, like, captivated with true crime stories and that sort of bad boy in jail. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's... You know, I think of it, like, first, it's sort of like a, a Manson or Richard Ramirez kind of thing. No, it was happening back then. Yeah. He people... was kind of, even, like, other dudes were kind of, like, like fascinated fa- yeah. by this guy. Yeah, because, you know, it's uh, infamy, if not fame, you know. Yeah. 
What newspaper is this from? The York Daily, 5th of April, 1884. So this is very shortly before his last days. Okay. Until recently, he had occupied himself in knitting mats and hammocks and has acquired some skill in their manufacture during his imprisonment. These he offered to his visitors for sale to supply himself with the necessary funds for some delicacies. But since his death warrant has been received, he has been denied such things and has been deprived of his possessions and is kept in solitary confinement. This annoys him, and he contends that he should be allowed a general good time before he dies. Coyle is a quiet young man, having passed his 29th birthday on the 15th of March. He's well-built, inclined to be robust of good form, pleasing face, which he generally keeps clean-shaven with the exception of a mustache. He is what many have said to be a handsome man. His conceit is great, and he frequently tells his listeners that people talk of him as John Coyle, the handsome man, and prides himself greatly on the fact. His sense of humor or braggadocio is at all times great. His cell is a variety show of funny pictures, cheap chromos, advertisement cards, and valentines, but chief among these are his original attempts at depicting certain comic events of his life and trials. By trade, he was a ferryman, and one of his pictures is of a boatman in a leaky flatboat with the inscription, John Coyle's Last Road to Hell, a phrase used by one of his witnesses on his trial, as he says. Another is a black bass which once jumped into his boat as he was crossing the river. Still another is a picture of himself with this underneath. John Coyle, the murderer of the molasses bread. This constituted his meals before the county commissioners decided to order for him the best the jail afforded. He is much pleased now with his change of diet, and he has read many of the things said about him in the papers and says with all these publications he guessed he's the biggest man in the state. Hmm. His sanity is entirely apparent to anyone who would listen to his tale. He converses pleasantly, at times, however, wildly and extravagantly. Some of his eccentricities are peculiar. He began some time ago to solicit money from those who visited the jail to see him, stating as his object the purchase of a watch, which he now proudly wears and displays, and he has expressed the wish that it should be wound up and hung in his coffin. His hatred of and vituperation against his enemies is at all times violent. He acknowledges the killing of the girl and asserts that he loved and still loves her, at one time implying that he's sorry, and again that he feels no remorse of the deed, but that the way he was treated by her was enough to drive anyone crazy. He had been encouraged, he says, and it was always Johnny here and Johnny there with her, and waving of handkerchiefs when he rode away on his trips, and kissing of hands to him. It drove him mad, he says, when she refused to be his wife, and he committed the deed in a fit of temporary insanity, and he even produces what he considers an unanswerable argument to the effect that he then shot himself, which he thinks no sane man would have done, but would have tried to make his good escape." He seems particularly violent against those bloodhounds, as he calls his enemies, who swore away his life on his trial, and he looks to Providence to avenge his wrongs. He gives his theory of the brilliant red sunsets of the winter as the daddy's wrath at the wickedness and false swearing on his trial, and says this was all a special dispensation, or his own private benefit, and that he would not be surprised to see the same power avenge the injustice done by him by a miraculous opening of his prison doors. This seems to be the only hope, for the anticipates nothing from the Board of Pardons to whom he will not apply. Yes, he was sentenced to hang. And very interestingly, there was a book written about this murder that I read some time ago. And I don't believe this story showed up in that book. Emma's aunt shows up in Gettysburg, asking that she be a witness to Coyle's hanging. But she brings with her a very interesting relic. Mrs. Mack, a resident of this city, was at Gettysburg yesterday. She made application to Sheriff Plank to be allowed to see John Coyle hanged. She was denied admission, as it is seldom that a woman is anxious to witness a scene of this kind. An independent representative who was present sought an interview with Mrs. Mack. 
I am the aunt of Emily Myers, she replied. I've attended both trials of John Coyle, and I want to see him hung, as he richly deserves it. Mrs. Mack exhibited the heart of Emily Myers, which had been preserved in a bottle of alcohol. The wound produced by the bullet which took the life of this young woman was quite easily seen. The dress, a dark calico, is also in the possession of Mrs. Mack. Both these articles were brought here last night. It is the intention to bury the heart immediately. Wow. Different time, right? When you show up with the heart of your murdered niece. And her dress that she died in. Yeah. And that isn't brought into any sort of evidence. That's just something you keep as like a weird family. Yeah, but that's shocking, right? Yeah, that's... That's, uh, Wow. And then I guess the question, I was wondering where that went, but I guess they probably buried it with her. One would hope. Well, she's originally buried in a, a defunct cemetery in Marietta, but then was transferred when that cemetery went under. Went under. <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. To the same cemetery where the river witch is buried. Yes. Yes. It's a pretty hopping area for... But her grave is unmarked. Yes. It's pres- uh, presumed to be with her aunt. Mm-hmm. Because there is a grave next to her, but it's it's unmarked, so she's it's presumed to be there. But sad that she doesn't have a marker. And when Johnny Coyle was eventually executed, the plan was to bury him there as well, but the people of Marietta wouldn't have it. Yeah, we'll get to that. Johnny Coyle was hanged April 21st, 1884. This is from the Harrisburg Daily Independent, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Tuesday, April 22nd, 1884. The narrative of Coyle's family, how early training and vice led to vicious habits in life and last scenes from the gallows. A pleasant ride over the mountain brought the representative of the Independent to the famous seat of Carnage, Gettysburg. The state old town tonight is unusually lively. The city is full of strangers and the hotels are crowded. This is in large measure due to the fact that it is court week. And in addition to this, the notorious John Coyle will tomorrow answer for the life of one Emily Myers, whom he so brutally murdered about four years ago. Your representative paid the old Gettysburg jail a visit early in the evening. Sheriff Plank and his deputy were found in the office, and after some little delay, the courteous sheriff allowed the scribe the freedom of the corridor. This place is a one-story building, having a single corridor, probably 40 feet in depth, and on each side are six cell doors. Cell number three is the one which attracts the most interest at present, as it is what is occupied by John Coyle. When the independent reporter called the condemned man, he was in conversation with one of his spiritual advisors. Professor Philip M. Bickle. The young man, as viewed through the opening in the door, appeared to be a man of medium stature, attired in dark clothing, neatly made. He wore a full black beard and mustache, presenting a pleasing appearance, and there are many handsomer men than Coyle. The time allowed the scribe in the corridor was very limited, and he was unable to converse with the prisoner. In the jail yard, the jail building proper is surrounded by a yard about 30 feet in width, and it is the portion at the back or end of the corridor in which the gibbet has been built. The gallows to be used on the morrow is entirely new and is painted a dark lead color. Sheriff Plank had copied after the Easton arrangements in his mechanical appliances, and at the time of the execution, the sheriff will be concealed in a small tent where he will manipulate the spring, which will launch John Coyle into eternity. The space surrounding the gallows where the visitors will stand will probably accommodate about 200 people. Exactly 480 permits have been issued. As the old clock in the jail struck 11, the sheriff threw open the cell door and the march to the gallows commenced. Coyle appeared with a spiritual advisor on each side, and he gave one hasty glance at the hundreds of eyes turned upon him and never again looked up until he reached the scaffold. The condemned man remaining firm to the last... Coyle ascended the steps of the scaffold with a firm tread, 
and when he reached the platform, stood erect, looking with dazed eyes on the upturned faces which surrounded the gallows. The crowd was hushed while the officers pinioned the prisoners' arms and legs. The Reverend Demarest offered a prayer, and Professor Bickle read the scriptural lesson. At the close of the services, the pastors bid the condemned man farewell, and the officers placed the cap over his head and face and also the platform. And while descending, the spring, which let the platform fall, was stuck by the sheriff in his tent and launched the prisoner into eternity at 11.23 a.m. The plunge downward was heavy, coil being of robust weight, the effect being instant death. There was little struggling, and after the body had hung for 25 minutes, was cut down and delivered to the father, who with the mother of the culprit were present, arrangements having been made to convey it at once to their home, where it will be interred. The execution was regarded as successful and decorous, and the officers in charge doing all in their power to make it such. You would think that would be the end of the article. Like, that's a good good mm-hmm. way to end it, right? Yeah, right, with the drop. Instead, they start to to talk about the early life of the young murderer and how he was reared. Mm. A sort of um, explanatory information that doesn't really even come up so much in trial. Interesting. The history of the Coyle family from the birth of the young man who was strangled on the gallows today at Gettysburg and several years anterior to the birth is said to be full of vile incidences and the romance which adds a glare to criminal life revealing its hideous proportions in its most repulsive forms. The elder John Coyle was and is known at Marietta, Lancaster County, and at Coyles Ferry, York County, opposite to Marietta, and on the shores of the Susquehanna as a man of brutal passions and ruffinly instincts. Twenty-five years ago, he was a river pilot, accustomed to the rough encounters of his possession, and known among the Susquehanna as one of the most reckless men who ever steered a raft from Middletown to Columbia. His name was identified with many a bloody encounter, and his strong arm struck many a sturdy blow in the barroom affrays and tie-up revelries. At the early period spoken of his then-first wife, a good woman, had three children, one a babe. This isn't mentioned anywhere else. No. She was madly jealous of the present Mrs. Mary Coyle, who was then the wife of another man. And hearing that her husband had gone to Lancaster with the woman in question, Mrs. Coyle followed the faithless pair, and during her absence from Marietta, the house was fired by the two elder children whom she had left behind, and before they could be rescued, burned with them in the flames the babe having been carried out by parties that arrived on the ground. This frightful calamity added to her other trouble, crazed Mrs. Coyle, and she died a short time thereafter. The present Mrs. Coyle went to keep house for the then widower, her husband becoming besotted in a short time thereafter, when John Coyle married her. For years, John Coyle the elder kept a ranch in Marietta, Lancaster County, which was the resort of the vilest of the vile. Now that is interesting because at one point they talk about how Johnny Jr. was a party to brothels both in and out of his home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They don't mention too much about the parents. Like, they just mention how much they're doing for him previously and not this this backstory, which is shedding a lot of light on the subject. Scenes of violence were daily enacted in the house. And when there were none, for instance, to raise a row, Coyle amused himself beating his wife, whose cries of murder and help startled the neighbors at all hours of the night. During rafting season, John Coyle's house was a favorite resort of the lewd and vile of both sexes. Amid such scenes, young John Coyle was reared. From his earliest infancy, he was schooled in vulgarity, debauchery, and drunkenness. He was conceived in inequity and brought forth in shame. His father instilled the action of a ruffian in him, and his mother petted him in excesses which eventually tempted him to smite her in his moments of intoxicated fury. He daily was allowed to indulge in drink and could handle the rum bottle long before he did a day's useful work. 
The family became so notorious in Marietta that they deemed it prudent to leave that borough and occupy a house on the opposite side of the river, which became known as Coyle's Ferry. The elder Coyle cultivated a few acres of ground and kept a roadside inn. Father and son both indulged in drink and both came frequently into hot personal encounter and wrangled in drunken disputes, which could be heard on the Marietta side of the river, plainly. Wow. It was while living at the ferry that Mrs. Coyle became disabled in rheumatism. Produced, it is said, by her son John locking her in the ice house to bring her to terms when he wanted money or whiskey. Mrs. Coyle's condition rendered it necessary to engage help in the house. The known violence of the Coyles made it a difficult thing for them to fill the place of help, and Mrs. Coyle's stepfather induced his granddaughter, Emily Myers, to undertake the task. They said she was a distant relative, so that is how she related. This brings our hasty narrative of the Coyle family down to the period when the murder was committed for which John Coyle Jr. was hanged today, and at the time, young John was in the habit of lying in ambush in the vicinity of the house, and when his mother offended him, shot at her. One of the doors of the house still shows the marks of bullets fired by young Coyle at his mother. It was not his fault that he had not been hung for the murder before he assaulted and killed Emily Myers. He became passionately enamored with her, pursued her daily with appeals to marry him, which she indignantly repulsed. Mr. and Mrs. Coyle seconded the suit of their son and exercised a reign of terror over the ill-fated young woman, who repulsed the sottish young man and thereby excited his passion until it became demonic. Yet another instance of someone who probably shouldn't have access to a gun. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. After his hanging, his parents take his body back to the Accomac. As you said, he was refused burial in Marietta. Now, since you read that article, I always just thought it's because he was a murderer. I mean, I'm sure that's the major reason, but... I think it, they were one of those families where it was like, oh, they're the... Yeah, I think it, now that you're reading that, I'm thinking like, yeah, maybe they're just like, yeah, no... no they wore out their welcome yeah, in Marietta. No coils over here. Not only is he refused burial in Marietta, He's buried right beside the Akamak. The tombstone is still there. They say there was no stone in that one article. Mm -hmm. This is from my book, Don't Look Behind You, in the appendix I write about the Akamak. Whether the reporting was incorrect or the stone was erected afterward, there is a marker on John Coyle's grave, which sits in the trees on the Akamak property. The epitaph reads, Mother, do not weep for me, for I am not dead, only sleeping here. It is an interesting turn of phrase for someone whose specter is said to still roam the grounds. It is said that the Coyle family wished for John to be buried in Marietta, but as he was a convicted murderer, his corpse was refused admittance to the burial ground. The family buried him on the property close to the barn where he murdered Emma Myers. After his internment, John's father slept upon his son's grave for three nights in order to protect John's body from grave robbers. So there's two stories about that. One has to do with that watch. Mm-hmm. One of the stories is that because they talked about that watch in the newspaper and he said he wanted to be buried with it, he was very proud of this watch. Mm -hmm. They were afraid of grave robbers. I'm thinking his father would have taken that watch regardless. Who knows? But yep. I'm just saying that was one of the stories that mm -hmm. they were afraid people. The other is they were afraid of for medical reasons. Yeah. Right? He said that he saw some people while he was sitting there. He saw some people who he presumed to be medical doctors from neighboring towns that were coming to steal the body. Continuing from Don't Look Behind You, the ghost stories of the Akamak have been well documented in multiple books of local ghost lore. Employees have reported feeling watched or otherwise as if there was a presence in the room with them. Specters of a man, a woman, and even a disappearing cat have been seen. Local ghost hunting groups have captured interesting EVPs, and unexplained music has been heard in the building. It's one of those places that turns up in, like, you know, haunted York County. It always turns up, it, you know, it's one of the oldest buildings in the county. And people were there. I mean, if you want to talk about a liminal space. Yeah. Right next to a huge river and you're the ferryman. <laughs> yeah. It's not that far from Toad Road as the crow flies. No, it's it's very close to a lot of things we talk yeah, about. Yeah, not that far from Site 7 as the crow flies. Not uh, that far away from the Albatwitch Festival or Chickie's Rock where the Albatwitch is seen. In 1913, there is a wild man that's seen at the Akamet. This is from the Harrisburg Daily Independent, June 16th, 1913. C. Wildman. Marietta, June 16th. Considerable excitement prevails on the other side of the Susquehanna River as a wild man was seen by a number of persons. He was last seen near the summer resort Accomac by one of the proprietor's daughters when she ran into the house. Diligent search failed to locate him. The man was nude and had a long beard. Parties hunted all day for him. This is from the York Daily, June 17th, 1913. Wild man at Accomac. 
Human being entirely nude inhabits river hills. Chaste girl. Accomac, June 16th. A supposed wild man has been seen in the hills near here on Friday by a daughter of Leonard Waller, proprietor of the summer resort, obviously after the coils. Mm -hmm. She was badly frightened by his appearance. While walking near the water's edge, she observed the bare foot of a human being, and upon approaching it, a man entirely nude arose and chased her into her home. A search was made immediately, but no one could be found until several hours later when a man was seen walking down the path and was ordered to leave by Mr. Waller. Yesterday, he was seen in the hills by several visitors from the lower end of the county who spent the day there. And from the Courier, June 22, 1913. A wild man is reported in the hills near Accomac across the Susquehanna from Marietta. He is said to be nude and have long beard and hair. It is believed he is an escaped lunatic. <laughs> so this is one of those wild man reports where you're left wondering, what is it? Just a naked guy chasing girls around? Mm -hmm. and, and again, we have that. And this is also not that far away from the seven gates of hell mm -hmm. where there was, you know. Not any actual escaped right. <laughs> lunatics. Exactly. Uh, yeah. As they, oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. But it is, um, and in fact, he would have to go probably an, an hour or so north by modern conveyance to get to any sort of state hospital for yeah. insanity. Yeah. So the, this idea that um, there are all these people that have just somehow magically escaped and are mentally ill. Yeah. Yeah, and you could certainly be mentally ill and not have escaped from an asylum, you know. That where it talks about how he had a long, long hair, long beard, and he was naked, is that a cover-up for saying that he's covered entirely in hair? Well, that's what I always wonder, you know. Yeah, is, it, is it a Bigfoot sighting? Yeah, I mean, that's, this is one of those question mark wild man reports. Like, mm -hmm. you, you really don't know what kind of wild man they're talking about. Yeah, is it just a, a guy that's a little crazed near the river without clothes on? or The fact that she's badly frightened. I mean, you know, if you're chased by anybody, I guess you're going to be badly frightened. So how badly frightened was she? But the fact that they mentioned other people from the county had seen him, mm -hmm. you know, before. It's almost like, is there... I honestly would be more afraid of a strange naked man that pops up and starts chasing me than a Bigfoot. <laughs> My last note on this in the book is, how strange it is that the son of one of the previous owners of the Accomac killed a young woman on the property, and years later, a daughter of another proprietor is chased by a wild man. Another case of multiple weird things occurring in one area. Murder, restless spirits, ghostly animals, strange music, and a wild man, all surrounding one property in the Helm Hills, so close to Toad Road. Again, that's from Don't Look Behind You, Following Ghost Roads Into the Unknown, by me. One of my books that doesn't sell as well locally because I did not put anything about Toad Road on the cover. Yeah, the other one sells a lot yeah, beyond better the seventh because gate, it, has, it the, says Beyond the Seventh Gate. And yeah, you have to turn it over to realize that it's, it's about uh, more local stuff than not. Yeah, so that's the Accomac. I did have access to the property of the Accomac for a time. I explored it. I got to see the grave. I got to walk in the woods up behind it. You know, it's like... Any other wooded property along the river. You know, I, I love them all. They're all beautiful. Any area along the river that's still wooded around here, is, mm -mm. to me, is just stunningly beautiful. Yeah, I mean, you can make kind of a whole day of popping by the interesting properties along the river. What is it, the former Dritt House? 
Yeah, you can also go to this, if you want to go to a kind of a neat, not abandoned cemetery, but a more private cemetery that you can actually go to, you can take the little path behind the Zimmerman Center for Heritage and see the graves up there. That, by the way, is an awesome little place to stop in, the Zimmerman Center. It's it's neat. It's just got a lot of little local stuff, a lot of stuff about the Susquehannock Indians, a lot of paintings of the Susquehanna. Really, really interesting. And then they also give... And some information about what what they call it. Cresop's War? The, yeah, I don't know if it's Cresop or Cresop. I've never actually heard someone pronounce it. Basically, there was pitched battles between Pennsylvania and Maryland for the, the land in southern Pennsylvania. And uh, he was on the Maryland side. So he's, he's not well-liked around here. Didn't he end up dying in the river? I think he did, he yeah. He drowned or something. Yeah. So. Yeah, but, and you can take river tours there. You can sign up for River tours, I'm not sure if they're still free. That When we took it, they were free. I don't think they are now because they have like an upscale boat that takes you out on it. But it's really fun. It's worth it. It's, it's totally worth really it. It's a really cool little tour you can take. What, take, what, an hour, a couple hours out yeah, on the river? But, it, but you get to hear a lot of the history of the river. And it's just, yeah, it's a really neat. Like, I was so happy we did it that day. It was, we're not usually spontaneous. And when someone says, would you like to get on a boat for a while? We're not usually like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Usually take some planning for us. <laughs> But yeah, and uh, up behind it, like you said, is that really neat cemetery, very well manicured cemetery. Mm-hmm. Uh, not far away is uh, Native Lands, which is the last known settlement of the Susquehannocks. The Mason Dixon Trail runs through there. The Wrights Ferry Bridge. We talk about history of the Quaker Wrights who mm-hmm. established that area and then through generations were pivotal in the the fight for abolition. Mm-hmm. The Mason-Dixon Trail runs right behind the Zimmerman Center and on down to Devil's Hole from there. It's it's not a bad walk from there to Devil's Hole. So a lot of interesting stuff right in that area. It's really, really cool. And of course, Columbia is right across the river. We've said again and again how much we love Columbia. The Acomac, when I did my ghost tour in Columbia, that was one of the stories I told because it was right across the river. You could mm-hmm. point to it, you know? Yeah. We've been literally sitting on this story for a long time. Yeah, I had notes in another notebook from the first time we tried to do it. Yeah, we were going to do it. So rest in peace, Emma Myers. I've been holding this curiosity of the week, Allison. For this express purpose. Until we did our next true crime show. Yeah. This is a neat little booklet. Can you solve a crime? No. (laughs) <laughs> Probably not. No, that's was... the name of the booklet, Allison. Can you solve a crime? I mean, I played Clue as a kid, but I don't know. This has picture clues, leading and misleading questions, and correct answers for six complete crime mysteries. It's a very, very early true crime fascination ephemera here. It's from the 30s, right? 1937, Dr. Earl S. Sloan Incorporated. Like from Sloan's Liniment? I'm guessing so, right on the back. Oh, yeah, Sloan's Liniment. Sloan's Liniment. If you want a Sloan's Liniment bottle, I probably have 20 of them. You can, <laughs> you can make a deal for mm-hmm. both. So this is, uh, it's not filled out. It, it has like questionnaires in there. It's each, so there's six. It's little, almost like a choose your own adventure book mixed with like. Um, like a, where you're looking for like details in the pictures and stuff. Because mm-hmm. it has, you know, drawings of each crime scene and then questions and so forth. So this idea that this is just some sort of new white mom thing is not... Oh, yeah, true crime fascination. Yeah, everyone has been fascinated with it. a long time. She's definitely scared on the front there. 
Yes, she she looks actually like she's having a good time. She's like <laughs> mock scared to the point of laughter. And then there's a very ominous shadow behind her yes. that is clearly not her and looks a little bit like Boris Karloff. Yeah, so can you solve a crime? I'll put a picture of the cover of this booklet in the show notes at strangefamiliars.com. If you click on that, it'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can purchase this and other curiosities of the week, those that we have left. At Etsy, we also have Strange Familiars t-shirts. We have the original and Glow in the Dark. Take your pick. We have Strange Familiars stickers and patches. All of my books are there, including Don't Look Behind You, the book from which I read tonight. We have my art book there, Apparitions, Illustrations of the Other. That's the only place you can get it other than Riverbend Comics. Mm -hmm. Just from us and Riverbend Comics, because I can't figure out how to get it on Amazon. Also at Etsy, artwork, prints, and originals. And some of my music is there as well, along with antique photographs. Allison's put a bunch of those up and more. So check out all of our offerings at Etsy. Our shop name is Lost Grave. But if you type in Strange Familiars, our stuff will come up. If you need other books, you could go to Riverbend Comics. Isn't that a seamless transition? It is. Now let's go ahead and talk to John. Welcome back to Strange Familiars. John, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's always a pleasure to be here. What is happening at Riverbend? Um, we are in the throes of uh, a new year, like everyone else. And so we've kind of did a year-end cleanup, redesigned the entire space. There's a bunch of sales going on, trying to get some inventory out the door, new stuff in. Yeah, we're doing good. It's been a, it's been a good year so far, even though it's only been, what, 17 days? It's good to hear. You haven't heard tonight's show, because it hasn't come out yet, but it's about a place that's a walking distance from your house. Really? Yes. The old Do you have it? Oh, yes, of course. Okay. Yeah, I look forward to hearing this one. I have some uh, thoughts about probably what you're talking about on there, so I'm looking forward to that. Seems like there's a lot of interesting tales to be told and talked about in the surrounding areas of where I reside. So yes. Fun. I'm destined to live in the Helm Hills, I think, and Allison won't let me buy the uh, the Furnace Masters oh, mansion. Oh, no. uh, too bad. Yeah. I, I love living in the Helm Hills. It's a good spot. Yeah, I love it. absolutely love the area. Yeah. When I stopped by Riverbend most recently, you told me about this comic, and I said, this, the Strange Familiars people have to hear about this. So yeah. This yeah, is a, a new comic by the fellow who did Department of Truth, Yes. Yeah, so this is uh, James Tiny the Four, which the listeners will, if they've heard other segments that we've done where Sam and I have taken over the reins here and there. We talked about the partnership on the podcast before. Uh, we also talked about Nice House on the Lake, which just finished its 12th issue, first sort of first season done, which still at the conclusion remains one of my favorite comics of the last, I don't know how many years. So if James Tiny is writing a comic these days, I'm pretty much going to pick it up and read it. And so his new comic is called Blue Book. And this was his desire to kind of put out a uh, series that he was describing as true weird, which is like uh, adjacent to true crime. Mm -hmm. And so this is a five issue series that covers the story of Benny and Barty Hill and their alien abduction from the, the 1960s. This is such a good idea. And what you showed me of it, like the, when the previews and stuff, it just looks so cool. As I said, this is like perfect strange familiars ground. 
Yeah, it's really neat. So it's a five-issue series, and so each issue is going to have you know, the, the Betty and Barney Hill story, but there'll be a backup story, which is another sort of short story of true encounters of strangeness or aliens, other things. I think the second issue, he's doing a story on the green children, which I think you've done on your podcast before. If not, I'm I don't know if we've talked that. about it on the pod. We definitely talked about it in the Discord, but I don't know if okay. we actually had it on the podcast. Yeah, that's one of those stories that I would love to cover someday. Yeah, it's a really neat story. He's going to, so the second issue will have a little bit of that story in, in, this, in the second oh, part. Um, that's awesome. But the, yeah, the artists, the artists doing this, they've got a lot of cool different covers. So if you're into the story, you can buy one and you have it. If you're like a collector and got to have them all, there's like five or six different cool alien themed covers. But the artwork on the inside is a guy named Michael Avin Emming, who I know most from a, a comic that he did for Image Comics called Powers. But he's got a really cool style, so it's kind of neat to see them working together. Nice. So I have, I have high expectations of this series. It looks really super cool. I'm looking forward to it. And our listeners can pre-order them from you, yes? Yeah, we have them up online right now. It's going to run from February to June, so uh, you can put your order in now, and we'll reserve one for you and ship it to you when it comes out on the 22nd of February. We're going to carry all the issues, and probably likely when – the series concludes. We'll have some sets of the of the five issues that you can buy together. Nice. Um, it's pretty cool. Yeah, and it's like good timing too because I don't know. I don't know if you listen to it, Tim, but I just listened recently to the Greg and Dana Newkirk's new podcast, and they did a whole episode on Benny and Marty Hill. So it was a cool kind of refresher for the whole story because I had been familiar with this story for years, and I always really enjoyed it. But um, it was kind of nice to hear it in a new light, and now this comic pops up. So yeah, yeah, they have a piece of the the clothing or something. Do they have? Yeah, they have a part of part of Betty's dress, which yeah. is really neat, which has been tested and DNA tested and all kinds of things over the years, I think five or six times. It's um, awesome. That's really awesome. Well, riverbendcomics.com is where people can get in touch with you and pre-order Blue Book. And, uh, you know, I mentioned to you, I'm going to reach out and see if we can get Tiny and to come on Strange Familiars. And if we do, you have to uh, help me interview him. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I would love that. It'd be really cool. Hey, the other thing I'll mention too for your listeners is Dark Horse Comics, who's publishing this, sent us three different promotional posters of the cover of Blue Book. It's really cool. It's like a uh, maybe two foot by one and a half feet poster. And um, I have three of them. So if the first three orders that come in from Strange Familiar fans specifically, mention that in your order and first come, first serve out for the posters and for free. Fantastic. Cool, man. Very good. John, thanks for stopping by. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me, man. It's always a pleasure. Hope to see you guys soon. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back soon with more Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music books, art, podcasts, and more. Intro and background music is by Stone Breath. If you'd like to hear more or purchase music, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars gathering group. We're also on Instagram, at strangefamiliars, and you can find us on the web 24 hours a day. (laughs) 
We never shut down. Always open. We never sleep. Strangefamiliars.com. to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.